0: howdy everybody and welcome to another bp movie journal the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these i'm david i'm tyler we got a lot of movies to get through because we do I've, uh... you've been a, a busy little boy uh yeah because well, I am on on vacation mm. um so that helps um I also might need to take a break when you do yours um <laughs> Everything okay? Uh, yeah, well, we're sitting here. We're doing this over Zoom because yeah. of Omicron spikes and everything. We're just like exercising caution. We have like, yeah. things on our schedules, uh, so I'm sitting here and it's and raining. Have... Who wants to go out in the <laughs> yeah. rain? That's a very Los Angeles thing. Like, I'm not going to get <laughs> in my car when it's raining. Unless, like, I absolutely have to. What am I, a mailman? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I'm sitting here and I'm using my phone, my Letterboxed, and I just got th- my battery just turned red. Oh. Um, because I guess I forgot to usually I let it plug I let it charge at night, but uh yeah. I stayed up late watching the last movie on my list today. Okay. Uh, and I guess I must have forgotten to plug it in before I went to bed. So I might need to take a break and go get a charger at some point. But
1: let's uh soldier on. Okay. Now you uh, you watched a bunch of movies. We're gonna start off with three from you.
0: Yeah, three from me. The first one, getting into that holiday spirit. Uh okay. I watched a movie now, Letterboxed calls it game over. Okay. IMDB calls it Deadly Games. It is okay. also known as Dial Code Dial Code Santa. Okay. It's a French movie from 1989 that like if you even like even if you if you look it up on Shudder, the plot description mentions this came out a year before Home Alone. Because it is like a weirder, like R-rated Home Alone. Like it's about a kid who's home alone with his grandpa on christmas eve and he's like a super rich kid who likes to like build yeah uh he likes to play war games and build traps and stuff so he's like his house is already kind of booby-trapped a little bit and then a for reasons the movie even barely even tries to make clear a crazy person dresses as santa claus and 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 comes into the house and so the movie is this boy (sighs) protecting himself and his grandpa from a crazed santa claus type killer um uh it's very fun like it's it's uh it's fun to um sometimes it's does it feel uh, like home alone like does it feel like it, it like it
1: influenced home alone
0: no it honestly feels like this is like a back and forth thing this feels very diehard influenced this feels like a kids. i mean it's it's clearly not like made for kids it's about a kid like whereas home alone is like made is like a family film this would be like the first thing that happens when santa like comes down the Santa the crazed man dressed as Santa comes down the chimney. Is he stabs the family dog in the neck with a like cake serving knife? Oh, huh. so, like it's not a kids movie. It's upsetting. Okay, um, it's a horror movie, but a horror action movie. Um, and uh, yeah, I was talking about this with uh, our friend Scott and I, editor at large, um, and Julie, in friend of the show, Julie Sesnovich, about the idea that as like American art house people, the movies that we tend to see from other countries aren't actually like the mainstream entertainments from the other countries. We see right. like the festival films from other yeah. countries. So sometimes it's fun
1: to see like a popcorn movie from France, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, uh, it, it goes back. I mean, I guess this uh, kind of applies. It goes back uh, to one of my favorite Reviews from Siskel and Ebert about the movie Little Indian Big City, um, which would then be remade in the US as Jungle to Jungle. Yeah. Uh, But they were, and they, and both films made like their 10 worst list. And like Gene Siskel was just so. Uh, astonished at the success of little Indian big city, because the whole reason it came here was because it was insanely successful in France. And so it is nice to remember because it's very easy for us as American moviegoers to romanticize (laughs) films from other countries. Like it's like, Oh, well they just have, they just have a different sensibility. It's like, no, the ones that make it over here and that work their way into like the awards discussions tend to have a different sensibility, just as American films tend to have a different sensibility around that time of year. But yeah, like turns out the same stupid bullshit that every, that, that does well here can do well over there. It's just in a different language.
0: Yeah. It reminds me we had, um, um, I had to look at the episode to remember which uh, name he used in the episode, but we had uh, Lino Morales, from uh, Brazil on the show, you weren't on the episode. I can't remember why. To talk about Brazilian cinema, he was talking about like the Brazilian. What I was saying: the Brazilian films that we see here aren't the mainstream films. The other thing that he talked about is that most Brazilians don't even have a way to see the Brazilian films that we see. Hmm. Like unless they live in Brasilia or one of the places where there is a festival, huh. those those movies are essentially made to be exported to people like us um and 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 that you yeah it's hard to it's hard to see you know so like something like bakurao which like made a number of like top 10 lists or, or you know here in uh, at, at battleship protection in particular just in the u.s back yeah. in 2019 or whatever like very difficult to see <laughs> that if you're actually someone living in brazil yeah um which is a shame Anyway, so what was okay now uh, so anyway that, have that we was, settled on the name of the movie i don't know what to i mean i dial code santa is the most fun
1: yes yes uh,
0: um but uh deadly games is what imdb says and i think it comes up as deadly games on shutter which is okay. how i watched it um but yeah it, like i to go back to what i was saying it feels Die Hard <laughs> influence that has a lot of that like the cinematographer in particular feels like yon debant and Hard. like a lot mm-hmm. of like like Dutch angles that push in and, and, yeah. and things like that. Like uh, it's, it, it feels like a big action movie, except that it's a little kid and it's Christmas. And it's also just like weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So uh, let's move on to a movie that I know you saw and loved. Cause we already talked about it on the movie journal a while back. Joe writes Cyrano. Oh yes. Uh, yeah. I also really dug this movie. Um, mostly. I mean, there's, I don't want to I don't want to like discount how good, Peter Dinklage's and Haley and Haley Bennett and, yeah. uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr. And Ben Mendelsohn. Like, I don't want to discount that. Yeah. Like, cause they're all doing very good stuff and and Joe Wright is doing a good job too. But I feel like this is like a movie that's like 80 to 85% of what I love about it is that I love the songs so much. Yeah. Um, cause they're written by, um, the, the Desner brothers and Matt, Berninger and I can't remember her name now um, from the national it's Matt Berninger's wife who's not in the national, but has been a lyricist for the national for almost as long as that band's been around. And I can't remember her name now. I feel like a sexist. I remember the three, (laughs) remember the three male names, but not, not hers. Um, And I mean, it, they very much feel like songs by the national, which doesn't you'd think that'd be like, Oh, so it's like a rock,
1: uh musical it's not occasionally there's one or two numbers that maybe are but uh, okay. but for the most part it it feels pretty conventionally musical to me but with a with a slightly more modern quality
0: and and that's kind of the thought that i had was like realizing in retrospect i feel like oh yeah i guess a lot of songs by the national could aren't that far from being turned into yeah. to musical theater um uh it's it's more the other way um yeah so i i really I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, at a certain point, I feel like when we talk about movies, like going to uh, Toby Hooper, no, not Toby, Hooper, uh, Tom Hooper's uh, Les Misérables. <laughs> I would to see yeah. Toby Hooper, Le, Hooper's that's, Les Misérables. Yes, uh, Tom Hooper's uh, Les Misérables to West, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story to this. Like repeatedly, we're talking about like actors in modern musicals can't sing the way that they could, and that's just. It's it's just a change in what people expect. It used to be, generally, in order to be a Hollywood star, you had to be able to sing. There were some exceptions, obviously, Marlon Brando is in Guys and Dolls. Yeah, not a great vocalist. Um, But uh, at a certain point, you just have to accept. Like Peter Dinklage is not a great singer. He's his Haley Haley Bennett is great. Haley Bennett is fantastic. Um, Peter Dinklage. I don't know if that is his singing voice or if he listened to the national and decided to try and mm. like, well, the best thing I can do is try and sing like Matt Berninger. Cause he kind of does mm. um, have like sing in a similar way. It works, but uh, yeah, I really liked the movie. I thought it was very, um, uh, very touching and and melancholy. Um, and uh, yeah, did you know, okay. So Haley Bennett and Joe Wright are married. Oh, I didn't know that. And Peter Dinklage's wife wrote the screen or wrote, the stage play yes. this was a stage play first and then i don't know if she also adapted uh, I, or think, someone else's I think i think she did
1: adaptation but
0: uh yeah it's a real like family affair uh, yeah this and movie. it's
1: it's uh it's the the good side of nepotism i guess uh because yeah. i think it all works out yeah it's uh i as as listeners know um i saw a very early critic screening yeah. i saw it quite a while ago and i just thought like oh man like i can't wait to get this soundtrack, but it was so early that the studio had not released it yet because who cares? Um, And then finally they released it like a, like a week ago. So I, I downloaded it and, uh, and have been listening to it and you're right. Like Peter Dinklage, like it's when you listen to it on its own, divorced from the film, the music is still very good, but you definitely do feel they're like, Oh yeah, this singing isn't quite as, as impactful as it would be if you're just listening to a song. And, and I still liked it, but I definitely thought like, yeah, it's, uh, this is a situation where it, that did not occur to me. Like that thought did not occur to me while I was watching the movie. And I think it's because Joe Wright and the actors do such a good job of infusing it with emotion mm-hmm. and a real visual, uh, visual quality that uh, whatever, I don't want to say flaws, but whatever, let's say imperfections, which I know is similar to flaws, but whatever imperfections might be in the music uh, either are glossed over or they just somehow add to the larger tapestry of the film. Whereas uh, listening to it on my own, I still enjoyed it, but it just made me want to watch the movie again. Um, yeah, I'm glad. I'm really glad you liked it. Yeah, I liked it. Um, I mentioned the
0: main four cast members. I also want to just uh, a nod to Bashir Salahuddin, who plays um, uh, Cyrano's kind of like yeah. uh, mate. He's um, an actor. I know him Best from Glow from Netflix's Glow, where oh, he's okay. one of the husbands of the wrestlers, turn and then gets hired as the referee in the mm. uh, on the, on the wrestling show. Uh, but he Bashir Salahuddin seems to pop up in uh, a, a lot of things
1: here and there, and I'm always glad to to see him. I enjoyed him in the movie. It's kind of a shame that he just by nothing happens to the character, but just he kind of goes away after the after the yeah. first half. Yeah.
0: Uh, and then next up before I toss to you is uh, I watched Mexico's official entry um, uh, for the the foreign language Oscar, uh, Tatiana Hueso's Prayers for the Stolen. Uh, and uh, this is a, a very good movie, but very heavy. Um, it, it, it made me wonder, and maybe it differs country to country, but who is actually in charge of saying like like who in Mexico is saying this is the yeah. the official entry because the the reason i ask if you assume it's some sort of governmental body um prayers for the stolen is not uh a very rosy picture of living under mexican government it specifically mm-hmm. takes place in a small town in which the government and the police are uh toothless at best if not outright corrupt the actual the actual governance of the town is handled by the cartel that, um, hires, you know, the, the people, a lot of the, the, the women who and and children who work in the town or who live in the town, their job is that they, uh, work in the poppy fields, essentially collecting topium tar to make opium, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so it's, 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 it's almost like a feudal system, um, uh, in, in which, uh, uh, everyone lives under the thumb of the the cartels um, and the again, this is not a very bright and sunny fun movie. It's called Prayers for the Stolen. It's about a mother and daughter. The Stolen in particular is the thing that apparently something that happens in this type of town is that when some girls come of age, by which I mean like turn fucking 13, the cartel just steals them, kidnaps, kidnaps them to like to to turn them to sell them into uh, sex slavery or we, we don't we don't get the full we don't see the cartel side of things we don't get the full like journey of what happens to these girls when they get kidnapped but that's the that's the thing of this whole movie is that the this mother and the daughter the mother is trying to protect the daughter from getting stolen but the uh, movie is mostly from the daughter's point of view. So it's a it's a coming of age story that in many ways has all the hallmarks of a coming of age story, friendship and early romance and all these sort of things, but with this um uh at least to us in our in our say for more privileged lives, this almost incomprehensible mm-hmm. level of of dread and danger uh hanging over everything. So it's a a heavy movie, but um uh, a a very a very good one and a very um honestly observed and deeply felt movie all right your turn finally i talked too much
1: well hey no argument here um but that's you know that's on me i sh- i need to see more movies uh but i did see this movie it is uh wes anderson's the french dispatch finally i ah. saw it and uh i absolutely loved it um and i have you know it's been a while since i've loved A movie that he's put out i always appreciate it i appreciated isle of dogs there are things that i really loved about grand budapest hotel but i didn't love the film itself i didn't really like moonrise kingdom like the last film of his that i loved was probably fantastic mr fox which is 12 years ago now um but i really you skipped we're we're skipping something in there right maybe maybe there's one in there that i've skipped but i don't think so i think it's i don't know I, i don't remember yeah maybe you're maybe you're right Cause Moonrise Kingdom was 12. You're right. Yeah. yeah. I
0: thought that I thought for some reason that there was something in between Grand Budapest and Isle of
1: Dogs, but um, there's just four years in between them. That's probably yeah. why I just assumed there must've been something. Yeah. Well, you know, and he's making a stop motion uh, film. I imagine right. that probably takes right. some time. Um, but yeah. And so I really loved this and I think it's because the film itself, I think the, the film's love for the New Yorker, uh, is, is infectious. Um, it the film really does feel like a celebration of a very specific thing. And I think that even though there are multiple stories being told and the film at times feels a little scattered, uh, the fact that it is built around stories of a certain kind told a certain way, uh, provides the film, I think a certain kind of focus that allows me to, to embrace all the different scattered elements, uh, rather than be maybe frustrated by them. And so, and I loved, I loved each of the, each of the stories. There are really, there are three official stories and then there's uh, a framing device and then one brief little like portrait of, uh, Ennui. and, um, which is the name of the town. Did you say that yes. already? Oh. oh, no, I didn't. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's and, not a, por- cause a, a portrait of Ennui would be, you know, on, another. yeah, that's a different thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it has all of the same visual hallmarks that, that you would expect from Wes Anderson, but, um, but it all feels, you know, occasionally, le- certainly not to the extent of like Tim Burton, but there are times when, Wes Anderson will do something that makes me think like, okay, yeah, he's just doing his, his thing. And it feels maybe perfunctory or obligatory or, or whatever. Uh, it never feels full on creatively bankrupt, but it just doesn't feel quite as fresh as it used to. But every once in a while he'll do his Wes Anderson thing. And it feels like exactly the right thing to do. And for, and this film, just because of the stories being told and And because of the tone that he's trying to strike his visual aesthetic, his pacing sensibilities, the types of performances he's getting from his actors, uh, they all see they all flow naturally into each other. And it feels and you wouldn't expect it, but it just it feels like one very complete piece. It feels like an issue of a magazine where you, you read it from beginning to end, especially a magazine, like the New Yorker, where you read it from beginning to end and you get like just a, a, a larger portrait of certainly not a day in the life, but of like interesting stories happening in this place. And, uh, and yeah, I really, I really adored it. It was a lot of fun. I, I laughed quite a bit and, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I highly recommend it.
0: So which, uh, which of the three main stories is your, is your favorite?
1: I go back and forth on the first and third it's it's either it's either the first and third. I I like the second one quite a bit, of course, but it's either the first and third, uh, first or third. Um, the, uh, I think because the first one incorporates like, discu- like a, 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 an overt discussion of art yeah. and, and commerce uh, that I think that, that, hi- and I, you know, I, I've, I don't remember if we, if we like Adrian Brody or not, but I think he's delightful he's in, great. The, in the yeah. film. Um, and, uh, and yeah, yeah I, playing
0: I, off of uh, um, uh, Henry Winkler uh, and Bob Balaban. Yeah. And Like um, who's the older, uh, is it June Squibb? Lo- lois smith lois smith who i think yeah, does sorry, a, a wonderful job as well the humans yeah uh, uh lois smith yeah i like <laughs> adrian brody like being like hugely energetic and and yeah. uh, apoplectic
1: uh, around these like genial older people <laughs> and it does have that wonderful uh you know living tapestry of uh, of this uh, big fight that co- that that breaks out yeah. uh in the prison yeah. and uh yeah i think it was it's probably the first one that third one is amazing and obviously jeffrey wright is always delightful but uh that's
0: what keeps because i also lean towards that first story as being my favorite but i feel like jeffrey wright and steve park as the chef oh yeah are both so great in that third one that i almost don't want to like i want i almost want to give the 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 nod to that to that entry
1: just for for those two alone yeah although (laughs) (laughs) the first one on top of everything else does have the wonderful frame advice by tilda swinton where she's telling this story and then it's like wrong slide that's me uh (laughs) i love that moment uh yeah it's uh it's it's pretty great the the whole film is great yeah
0: yeah the um and uh i think i said this in the movie journal when i saw it but uh Uh, but but just a bit of trivia in case i didn't say it: the two prison guards in the first one leia sidu and Denis Mm Minochet, played father and daughter in the opening scene of inglorious bastards
1: yes yes
0: all right um uh we'll have more on leia sidu later by the way but not quite yet now i'm moving on to a film it feels weird at this time of year to be watching anything but movies from this year sure Uh, but sometimes i have to i had to watch a bunch of obviously movies with jean paul Belmondo, um Mm -hmm. which was a lot of fun uh but i also watched a 2018 film called socrates a brazilian film speaking of what i was saying before directed by alexander uh morato um this is the film this film uh won alexander morato the someone to watch award at the film independent spirit awards back in in early 2019 and you watched him Yes. Uh, so, so I, I, I watched this, uh, and, and, uh, Socrates is it's, uh, I'm looking, it's only 71 minutes long and it is a kind of, um, Darden brothers esque, like following like handheld camera, following one character the entire time. But it's also like a Upton Sinclair's the jungle type of just like cavalcade of misery. Hmm. Um, it's about this, uh, this kid who in the, opening scene discovers his mother's dead body in their apartment so then he um is so like his 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 mother has died that he lives alone with he has to the the rent is overdue so he's like trying to he he tells his mother's employer like oh she's sick she asked me to fill in for her so that he can keep like making money to uh to 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 pay the rent on top of that he's gay and gets like uh uh, gay bashed and then once people find out that his mother has died that brings his like homophobic abusive father back into the picture so it's just like this kid yikes just cannot uh cannot win um and it is it's, it's kind of a rough film to watch i have to say but um it's uh um it's well-made and most notable about it that Socrates is the main character's name. Uh, the actor Christian Malheiros, or Melheros, I'm not sure how you say it uh, is fantastic. If you're going to build a movie that's uh, this focused on misery, you want to have someone give a soulful performance that you can see the humanity and in, 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 in identify with. And he's, he's fantastic in the role.
1: Yeah. That, that is the kind of role that if you have a lesser actor, it can become one note really of just misery and possibly self-pity, but like there's, but you can also find a good actor can find like even little moments of happiness and joy and and humor uh, in the midst of all that, which gives you something to latch onto and something to root for. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, all right. And then a detour before we get back to Alexander Morato, <laughs> um, uh, next up, I watched Michael Showalter's "The Eyes of Tammy Faye," which, in many ways, was the movie I was expecting, which is not uh, a good thing. <laughs> it's, yeah. um, uh, Jessica Chastain is—I feel like—in terms of the technique of acting, I think she's one of the best working today. Yeah, and yet, when was the last movie? <laughs> All the time you had. When was the last movie Jessica Ch- Chastain was in that you liked? <laughs> Cause it's
1: been, I had to look it up to, to, to figure it's, out. It's been we- a while. I, I mean, when I think of like, you know, uh, her heyday or whatever, I think of 10 years ago, uh, the last film off the top of my head, you know what? She was in Crimson Peak. I liked her in Crimson That's, Peak. Yeah. That was six years ago. And before yeah, yeah. that I liked uh, a most violent year, which is, uh, 2014 Well she's also
0: same year scripts and peak she's also in the martian which i liked a lot yeah um so yeah 2015 was the last year she made a movie that i liked after that there was the huntsman winters war which i didn't see miss sloan which was terrible the zookeeper's wife which i didn't see uh molly's game not good didn't like didn't see woman walks ahead didn't see x-men dark phoenix didn't see it chapter two or ava maybe it's just oh, that she's, i just need to stop
1: yeah i didn't like it. if the question is which one did, which movie did i like i like uh yeah that's tough because i did not like it chapter two but she was good in it she's always good yeah
0: but yeah there was also apparently there was a john michael mcdonough film earlier this year hmm. called the forgiven with her and Ray fines oh, yeah. and carlo jones i don't know about that but uh i sometimes like john michael mcdonough so maybe i'd like that but anyway the eyes are saying she's very good but uh and i think i would say the movie is less it's when it comes to Tammy Faye in particular, the, the movie is less condescending okay. than I thought it would be, which is not to say that it's not condescending, but I think Jessica Chastain being in the role gives it a little more humanity. The same cannot be said for any other character. This definitely has that mm. thing you've talked about, like the Aaron Brockovich main character thing where like, mm. this is a movie about Tammy Faye and every other character is serving that character and is often they are they are who they seem to be you you know what i mean and and there's not much else to it that's too bad because that's a good cast um yeah yeah it's it's definitely not not bad um uh let's see yeah i mean andrew garfield is um that's the thing yeah andrew garfield is like as as jim baker is just doing a caricature Vincent D'Onofrio, who I love, and the idea of Vincent D'Onofrio playing Jerry Falwell. I was be excited about awesome, that. but he's just like, uh, oh yeah, this guy is untrustworthy from the jump. Like there's yeah. there's not a lot of uh, nuance to the to the characterization. So uh, can't say I, I really recommend it, but uh, maybe I should see the Forgiven. Here's holding holding out hope that sure. Justin Chastain makes a good movie again. Uh, got. Seventeen or seven. Seven upcoming projects according to IMDB, which usually means like two of those will get made, yes. I'm guessing. Yes. Um whoa, well, oh apparently <laughs> hold on, hold on. IMDB says that John Hillcoat is making the movie about Tammy Wynette and George Jones, and she's cast as Tammy Wynette. That's two Tammies.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: With Michael Shannon as George Jones, I hope that can be This is make like uh, Peter that's
1: O'Toole sense. with uh, various kings of England. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's exactly what it's like. Um, all right. So uh, then, moving on to the 20, 2021 film from Alexander Morato, also starring Christian Malheiros. Also, uh, he clearly moved up in the world uh, and got a recognizable another recognizable name, Rodrigo Santoro. Oh yeah, Paolo from Lost. Uh, he's been in a lot
1: of other things too, but uh, I'll I I, I refuse to believe that.
0: Um, the movie is called Seven Prisoners. And uh, this movie, I have to say, is quite good. Uh, Christian O'Harris, once again, plays a poor kid, but this time from a good family, a rural family. The uh, Socrates takes place entirely in Sao Paulo. This takes place almost entirely in Sao Paulo, but it opens in like this rural place where he lives with his family. And he and some other boys in the town have gotten this, like, this uh, uh, opportunity to go into Sao Paulo and find work that's going to be a job that's going to like also pay them like food and lodging, and they'll be able to send money back home. So these these boys from the town go uh, into the city, and almost immediately realize, oh, we've been our our parents have unwittingly sold us into indentured servitude, um, and so they are trapped at this like warehouse where they where they work. Um, and it's funny, obviously, the listeners who long time listeners know if I watch two movies and one of them is from the someone to watch award, it's for my column at film independent. Um, so I wrote about Socrates and seven prisoners for the film independent blog for my someone we watched, uh, column, which, uh, is going to be pivoting to something else in 2022 because I'm kind of until other things become available or certain other winners like Alexander Murato uh, did this year, make another movie. There's not a lot of us, uh, other things I can, uh, I can yeah. cover, but, um, anyway, so, uh, but this was interesting doing this right after I did the same thing last month on Marine Ramin Brani because in many ways chop shop to the white tiger despite being like 15 years, uh, 14 years or whatever, um, is a similar trajectory as Socrates to Seven Prisoners. Chop Shop and Socrates are both very like, they want you to feel sorry, feel sympathy for this character that that terrible things happen to, that is like through no fault of his own in a terrible situation. And then uh, you jump to the, the 2021 films from both directors and you see similar setup but you see the movie test the limits of your sympathy by showing these characters, uh, uh, re- realizing within the system that they have been placed, that maybe their best chance of getting out is to become a part of that mm. system. And so you see this, this, this kid put by Christian Malheiros, Malheiros, uh, in seven prisoners Rodrigo Santoro is like the, I don't know, foreman, the one who's keeping them locked up and he sort of buddies up to him, becomes like among the prisoners. He becomes like the teacher's pet. And then he's like clearly being groomed for like a more administrative position. Meanwhile, his friends are seeing him like turn into the, the, the oppressor, but he's also getting closer to his own freedom. And maybe he's, yeah. he can, the idea is that maybe once he's in a position of power, he can help his friends, but then you also, you also wonder like, is that just a lie he's telling himself sure. to, to it's, 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 it's really great. Um, this movie and it, and it has, I think the reason I liked it more and I like Socrates, but the reason I like this one more than Socrates is something you and I have said, because, uh, we have the same professor back in uh i was gonna say film school you call it undergrad Um, yes i keep forgetting uh, (laughs) to but yes i call it that uh, um a professor who's who who, who's uh mantra almost was that there's nothing you can say in cinema that you can't say in genre cinema yeah and giving this kids i've uh mateos is the character's name um giving his journey the sort of structure of a thriller um uh weirdly makes it more it gives you more of something to hold on to and and in you know like handles so you can like inspect the whole thing at once mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what i mean as opposed to like socrates which is good but it feels like something that's happening to you and you can only be reactive in the moment you can right. examine it more <laughs> um and i'm reminded uh i can't remember if it was the last movie journal or when i talked about how like so many of the people i associate with who are film fans and also, also leftist lefties tend to like interpret anti-capitalist messaging in 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 things that i often feel like okay i think you're you're projecting a little bit because you want to see that um and i hope that and i wonder if that's maybe like going to be like uh Boy who cried wolf type of thing. When a movie like Seven Prisoners or The White Tiger come, both movies in twenty twenty one that are clearly critical of the capitalist structure and the way right. that it that it turns people uh, against one another and rewards self interest and um uh and and survival and uh, at, at all costs. Like you've got so if The White Tiger and Seven Prisoners are both very. Uh, bracing and, uh, uh, passionately made, um, critiques of, of, of capitalism, you know, you don't need to go searching for anti-capitalist right. critiques in eternals or whatever. Um, <laughs> I had to pick something, a mainstream thing I didn't see. Sure. Like you don't have to go looking for
1: it. There's, there's movies that, uh, that, that have it.
0: But, uh, um, uh, anyway, I think it's your turn again.
1: Yeah. And, uh, this is actually going to be my only, uh, rewatch, uh, it is uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, a film that I loved when I was younger, and th- and I've seen it a couple times since I've you know, like you know grown up, and it gets a little bit worse every time, and um, yeah. maybe even more than a little bit if I'm being honest. Uh, there's still some things that that I chuckle at, but it's never the same thing. Uh, <laughs> like when I was a kid, it's like look how fast he's going on that sled, you know. Now it's just like little little like one line things. Yeah. Delivered very well by Chevy chase. Like, uh, like his, his, uh, he's starting to go a little crazy. And then his, his father-in-law played by EG Marshall, something I wouldn't have known when I was a kid. Uh, he goes, he's like, he goes, you're loony. And he just goes, don't piss me off art. And just like, it just, <laughs> just that, uh, stuff. You know, like that but I will you say laugh. the one,
0: cause I rewatched it last Christmas season when we weren't going anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. The one big, dumb, broad thing that still makes me laugh is when he opens the stairs to the basement, and hits him in the face or the stairs to the attic. <laughs> I mean, when really, the, the the ladder from the attic comes down and hits him in the face. I don't know. That gets me, <laughs>
1: <laughs> man. That like that specifically, as I was watching it this time, I was just like, huh, I guess they felt they had to do something. Um, but uh, the thing that got me this time is, you know, I was thinking about stuff you're not meant to be thinking about when you watch this movie. Uh you know, the the in an attempt to raise the stakes, they've got this whole bonus thing going on where he could be he could be, you know, he could maybe not get his bonus, his Christmas bonus, um, something that he uh, assumes he's going to get because he always has. Um, and that with his bonus, he's going to put in a swimming pool uh, and he's actually had to put the deposit down on it Now. Uh, but he's, which, is, and he needs the bonus for that. And then when he, when it turns out, oh my gosh, I haven't got, I didn't get the bonus. I got a subscription to the jelly of the month club. Um, it's like, oh, this is, this is, uh, this is a dire situation. And the more I think of it, and now that I'm a home a homeowner, I think like this doesn't suit. Okay. There's a few things that don't hold up. Number one, swimming pool in the Chicago area. Feels like not a great investment. Um, that's I'm sure the there are people. I mean, like I, I grew up in St. Louis; people had pools. You know? I guess I guess that's true. It just, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it, requ- it would require a fair amount of maintenance. I'm sure uh, yes. around the winter months, but uh, but and I recognize, like, yeah, people can have pools in the Midwest; it's fine. Um, but that was the first thing um, that that got me. But the other thing is, like, swimming pools are extremely expensive to in, to install how big is this damn bonus check going to be that he's going to put in an entire swimming pool with yeah. it and here's the other thing if you know maybe the deposit who knows how much the deposit is going to be but it's like oh no i don't have the money to cover the deposit without this bonus and part of me is like you need to make better choices with your money <laughs> if you cannot yeah. cover <laughs> the deposits you need to use that bonus money for something better. Not, something it makes it sound vital. like he, he kited a check then. Right. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. And it's,
0: it's also like, it, it reminds me of, um, another Christmas adjacent movie, Judd Apatow's this is 40 yeah. where they're like the couple's having marital problems and they decide to like, to get through the marital problems. They decide to like go on a, uh, wine tasting weekend to be away from the kids and stay in yes. this. Like, like they could spend thousands of dollars to talk about their like, yeah, like, oh no, Griswold's, Clark Griswold's not going to be able to put a pool in his backyard.
1: How relatable. (laughs) Right. And it's, and that's the other thing that got me. And this is not a thing that usually bothers me that much. Um, like, you know, if, if everybody's got their problems and if you're someone like, let's say you're upper middle class, which I'd say the Griswolds definitely are, uh, if not straight up rich. Um, but like, you know, I, I get it. Everyone still has like emotional, uh, like relational issues with relatives. That's fine. Um, but the other thing that gets me is I just thought like, this is not, this is not a high stakes problem. You know, are you going to go to jail? Is this, is this a, it's not a, you know, it's a wonderful life situation where Mr. Potter is going to press charges because you lost this money. The pool company is just, you know, like you put the money down and and now now we're in trouble. It's like, yeah, but you're probably not gonna be in trouble that long uh <laughs> as I look at your house. Um and it just got me it got me thinking about this and Home Alone and maybe a couple other movies where like the 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 problem the the problems of like very not maybe not wealthy, but like rich people, like, oh my gosh, these guys are gonna break into their house or oh, this guy's not gonna be able to put it in a swimming pool. And I just thought like compared to something like a christmas story where even that family they live in an oak in a nice house but it's certainly i'd say they're they're firmly middle class um i don't know it just there there was a time in the late 80s early 90s where like in christmas movies and otherwise uh like our, our main characters were were pretty well to do and they could potentially lose something that is probably going to be insured anyway and uh, and it just really struck me and the other thing is just like clark griswold is making very bad financial decisions i don't think you need four to live in the house and like i just yeah. I, I went down that path i'm like it, i don't think i'm supposed to be thinking about this
0: i'm gonna do the thing i just uh uh was critical of which is projecting my politics into a reading of the movie sure sure could Christmas Vacation, the Vacation series in general, be seen as uh, a, a satire of male privilege because just by the fact that someone as clearly buffoonish as Clark Griswold is earning an upper middle-class income, uh,
1: that (laughs) movie, that movie, no, but around that same time, you also had the Simpsons starting and that actually could be the situation. Uh, especially a few seasons later when Frank Grimes shows up and really (laughs) we are all paying attention to just how, how stupid Homer is and how lucky he is. But, uh, but yeah. Okay. Moving on,
0: moving on to, uh, Bruno Dumont's France, which is a movie that I uh, loved and need to see again, um, because I have a lot of uh, things that I'm working through with it. But this is the movie I said uh, before Lea Seydoux would come up again. Lea Seydoux plays the title role. The movie is uh, takes place in France, but it is also about a person named France, okay. um, or France, um, who is a... Um, she's a television news uh anchor, but also does some in the field journalism I would maybe like liken her to a uh jake tapper maybe okay. um uh, uh, but also like well i guess the more the 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 better uh comparison would be a pre scandal brian williams okay um which like okay, <laughs> pause on this, okay, I don't pay attention to like t v news right so i the recently there was brian williams retired but yeah here i was like i had no idea that this guy still had a job within a country mile of journalism yeah i, I couldn't i was like what do you mean he this guy was still on tv doing news stuff uh, how how did that not end his
1: there, there are a lot of career? there are a lot of jobs where you can sort of where you can let's just say exaggerate another let's say lie you can just lie about your level of experience and what you've done yeah, and yeah. what's, ex- but it does feel like journalism is one where it's like, yeah, you can't, you can't do it and expect to have a job, but apparently so.
0: Yeah. I, I, I can't, I couldn't believe he was still in the air, but that's anyway, that's yeah. not here. Uh, I, I only I bring up Ryan Williams to say like, that's a, that's a better, that his career is a better comparison for who France is, but there's obviously no, you know, <laughs> lying scandal. Yeah. But maybe there should be, because we see her in the field and she's, clearly a tv producer first and a journalist second she's not okay. like she's not lying about what's happening but she is like essentially directing her interviewees or like reframing shots or restaging okay. shots to get the shot that she wants and stuff like that um but this is like that's not even the main thrust of the movie really um i mean it kind of is it all this movie is about so many things like uh that's why it has a title like france which could mean multiple uh multiple things um but uh the the sort of inciting incident i guess of the movie is that uh it's kind of a code unknown type of thing she's dropping her kid off at school and then she's not looking and she pulls forward and she hits a guy on a on a like a little moped or whatever Mm. and like breaks his leg um and she finds out like she's a rich famous tv people it's a run almost like absurd thing throughout the movie that no matter what situation she's she's in if she is outside of if she's in public the scene will be interrupted by someone coming up and asking you to to take a selfie with her it happens Mm -hmm. literally probably eight to ten times in the movie that someone asks to get a selfie with her so she's famous and she's wealthy and she hits this this young man who's um the oldest son of an the only son actually of an immigrant family. And she then realizes like, Oh, he was the breadwinner because of like illness and certain Mm -hmm. things like the parents aren't working. And so she like goes out of her way to like, it starts with like, I'll pay the medical bills. And she's like, you know, writes a check. She ends up like buying the guy, a new scooter and giving the family like $40,000. And then she quits her job and then goes to like a retreat in the Alps. She basically, this woman, like this event, this, this, this incident gives her a complete mental breakdown Mm -hmm. uh, an emotional uh breakdown and then other stuff happens in the movie uh, uh as well but um uh i generally when we do like the bps say or when i vote for like the um awards ceremonies um that i that i or the the critics groups or whatever um i'm often a little cautious about like highlighting a performance from a movie if the movie itself and this movie is great but i don't think france is going to make my top 10 right movies of the year but leia cdu's performance in this movie might be my single favorite performance uh mm. of the 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 entire year the way that she is like the, the movie is almost a comedy because it's so like i talked about it, like people constantly asking for selfies there are so many things that happen in the movie that are like almost ridiculous but it's also a tragedy and it's a psychological portrait and and the the france the character is because of who she is and who her job is and that she's a public persona is often always completely put together like you see like she never leaves the house without like full like hair and makeup and dress to the nines at all points she's like puts on this tough persona but she's also at any moment one war- wrong word or look away from completely crumbling mm. and the way that leah sadu plays these things and is not afraid to make fronts almost comically uh sensitive like the the way that she walks the line between this being a ridiculous performance and being what it is, which is one of the best performances I've seen in any movie uh, all year is, is, is astounding. Um, it's a, like, it, it, it's so much of the performance is in her, her face and her facial expressions and the things that she can do with her face. So Sadu has a very expressive face. Um, and, and the way that she goes from like being steely to being like warm and welcoming to being like, like almost childish than when she when she like starts to cry, it's like mm. it's like this isn't like you know I'm, I'm I'm trying to think of like uh, her crying. It's not like Tilda Swinton and Michael Clayton or whatever. It's right. She turns into a little girl when she cries, mm. and 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 the keeping all of those things within the same character without it, like and allowing room for it to be funny. I think that's the main. That's the way to do a thing like this is to like acknowledge that it might be funny because if you try too hard not to make it funny, it becomes self-conscious. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because sometimes things that happen in real life are funny and sad at the same time. Uh, and uh, anyway, yeah, uh, I, I look forward to watching France again um, because like I said, there's a ton going on in this uh, like two hour and 10 minute movie. Uh, but the, my main takeaway is that at Sadu is amazing. Uh, and with that,
1: You'll have to find out for yourself. Visit gocoastguard. dot com to learn more.
0: And we're back. I'm, we're gonna have to work out the <laughs> yeah case about that. Um, thank you for that. Uh, we got some feedback from mostly from our Patreon patrons, but. Uh, other yeah. listeners, the only ones we listen
1: to. Uh, that's it's not
0: true. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> do go to Patreon.com/slash/pretension if you want uh, to support us, and apparently, if you want Tyler to care about you. <laughs> um, uh, we well, yeah, we got some feedback about the the ads dropping in a little too abruptly. So now we're like yeah. leaving in room for them. Uh, so yeah, let us know how that goes if it's not uh, painfully awkward. Uh, all right, and then so next up for me, I, I said that France probably won't make my top 10 of the year. A movie that is almost certain to make my top 10 of the year is Paul Schrader's the card counter. All right. Holy cow. I was not prepared for, uh, how fantastic this, Mm. this movie is. And, um, the way that I mean, it feels like it's such a Paul Schrader movie, and that it's about like a, uh, a a loner who's like dealing with a lot of I don't know if it's self loathing, but he's like he's like self flagellating in many ways, but also uh, always very um, he he seems very cool, uh, even though he's going through turmoil and they're like. Uh, but I think that I, I talked about with France, like the idea of like walking a line, um, the, the, the temptation to make Oscar as a character's life. He's a professional poker player who travels around the country from like casino to casino and makes his money, uh, at, at, at poker. And the temptation to make that seem alluring and cool is almost impossible to resist. And Paul sure. Schrader does it by being like, yeah, this Guy has all the hallmarks of being cool. He's always like, like dressed, you know, he's always well-dressed. He's, uh, you know, he drinks, uh, his whiskey neat and he like never gets too involved and he drives this nice car and he's always, uh, but like acknowledging the coolness of it while also acknowledging the sadness and loneliness of it. And the way that that is like self-imposed, because I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't think this counts as a spoiler because I knew it going out. I don't know if you know the character's backstory. I do um, nice. Okay, so he the premise of the movie is that Oscar's character was one of the Abu Ghraib prison guards who were in the photos torturing mm. inmates, and he spent nearly a decade in in prison before he got out, and this is what he does. Mm. Um and so the, the 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 thing that starts to dawn on you very quickly is that as much as he has this like you would think that this roving life of his would be about him trying to like stay away, like stay one step ahead of something. But really what you realize is that no matter where he goes, every place looks the same. Um, You you know, every, every motel room he stays in looks the same. Every, every casino in the country essentially looks the same, you know, Uh, even the bars at the casinos look, uh, look the same. And, it starts to it started to dawn on, on on me that like uh, oh no he's not doing this to stay away from something he's doing this to sort of remain in the state of being imprisoned
1: yeah um
0: there's more to the story than that uh, Tiffany Haddish is in it and uh, what's his name Ty Ty Sheridan okay uh, not Taylor, Taylor Sheridan that's different yeah writer guy um and also uh, Willem Dafoe uh ty, ty- Sharon's character for reasons that become clear uh ends up joining Oscar Isaac on the road for most of the 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 movie but um it's the it's a it's a beautifully like restrained and uh sad but sometimes sublime uh movie and um yeah there's not much more that i want to to say about it without getting into you know i want to get into like analysis of what happens in the movie but i yeah. also have this like uh urge to be you know
1: somewhat spoiler spoiler free um yeah i got I, a, I got a couple of those this uh this time around it's it's it was actually uh bothering me a little bit leading up to this i'm like oh i really want to talk about oh no i guess i can't do that uh <laughs> so we could talk about how Willem Dafoe is in like every third movie
0: this fall. Apparently, Yeah. He's, he's
1: in, he's in one of mine. Um, yeah. Uh, Cause he's, let's see. Uh,
0: oh yeah. We didn't talk because he's in, uh, the French dispatch. Yeah. Briefly. Um, and the card counter and nightmare alley and spoilers. He's in, it's, that, <laughs> it's yeah. not a spoiler anymore. He's in no way home. Yeah. Which is the third, uh, Tom Holland Spider-Man movie. Yes. Yeah.
1: All right. uh, What's next for you? Next for me is, I never know how you say this last name, Michael Dowse, D-O-W-S-E, who he directed Goon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And he also did It's All Gone Pete Tong.
1: Oh, okay. I don't think I didn't know that. Um, Yeah. uh, In the spirit of the season, I watched 8-Bit Christmas. I wanted to watch something that was uh, from this year that I could throw on very easily while wrapping Christmas presents. And so I threw that on and uh film that uh, is trying so 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 hard hmm. to be our christmas story uh in which it's it's uh yeah. <clears throat> neil patrick harris plays uh, a, a father of a of a young girl who desperately wants a phone for christmas and he's telling her like no i can't I, I'm not going to get that for you. And then he tells her the story about when he was a kid and he desperately wanted a Nintendo. And uh, so it's that it's might as well be a red rider, BB, a BB gun. Uh, and it's especially because of just the way that it's narrated um, and the way that he delivers the narration and the uh, the different archetypes that the character runs across, like a certain bully and his parents are a certain way. And, 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 and also the way again, that the narration uh, characterizes them. It's just so, it's so, I mean, it's not a ripoff or anything like that. It's just clearly inspired by this and trying to be that for a a newer generation. Um, more specifically our generation, you know, similarly to like, if you're, if you were our age in 1980, whatever it was that a Christmas story came out and you'd be like, Oh yes, I remember this from the fifties or sixties or whenever, or maybe Mm -hmm. I forget when a Christmas story is supposed to take place, maybe even earlier than that. But, um, but yeah, and so it, it has this, this feeling of, of nostalgia. I don't know why I'm really soft pedaling it. It is a, a, a very nostalgic film uh, in ways that I felt were manipulative and frustrating. But it did begin to win me over almost exclusively by the charisma of its lead actor, uh, Winslow Fagley. Um, who okay. plays the young, uh, Neil Patrick Harris. And I believe is the younger brother of Oakes Fagley, who, uh, you might have seen in, uh, the new Pete's dragon. Um, and, uh, he is just so expressive and so delightful. I mean, I laughed out loud at times simply because of how he delivered a line that otherwise it might've just been kind of whatever. Uh, he really is something he's, he's, a, a He's a lot of fun. You can absolutely see why he got cast because he really energizes the material with uh, with a lot of humor. And um, <clears throat> so, yeah, uh, the film itself is is fine at best. But the reason that it is even that is because of that lead performance. The cast in general does a fine job. Steve's on plays his father uh, and, and honestly plays him in a way that doesn't really f- Feel right for steve zahn but uh, he he gets there um and uh yeah it's and then and then i do think that the way it ends it it ends in kind of a schmaltzy way that uh that going back one of the things that i like about a christmas story is that there's a certain degree of cynicism to it and a certain degree of I, i consider that film very unsentimental uh whereas this movie definitely at the end really embraces sentiment and it winds up, Oh, Oh, it's about this other thing that, that I didn't realize it was, it it was about. And it's like, well, I don't think it actually was about it. I think it just decided to be about it at the end so that we get the impression that it's doing something bigger. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm trying to think if I was happy that I watched it, not necessarily. Um, but, uh, but it's definitely one of those things where it's like, I'm going to it, it sounds weird saying this about a kid like I'm going to be paying attention to Winslow Fagley cuz I think he really has a career ahead of him as like a really solid comedic actor.
0: Uh all right well um you know and I am glad I watched a I'm going to say for lack of a better term horror movie okay called Agnes uh one of multiple nun movies uh th- this year um and it's uh directed by Mickey Reese who is the first mickey reese film i've seen because i think it's the first to get this this wide a distribution which is not a still a very much an indie film but it actually has like a couple of actors you might recognize it uh, sean um sean gunn uh is is, oh, okay, is, yeah. is in the movie but mickey reese has been i remember two or three years ago maybe two years ago uh katie reif from the av club did a whole like profile of mickey reese as this guy who like works in in like lives and works in like i want to say oklahoma and just like has been making movies for years on shoestring budgets and like slowly like getting into festivals and including like following his own muse and i think um i went back and reread the article uh because i talk about how he rightfully doesn't like the term outsider artist because it's kind of condescending to say like just because he's outside of the system yeah this guy is a film buff he's not like when i think of an outside artist i think of someone who is like not steeped in the art that they make yeah just like um uh creating without a like subtext any context but this guy clearly loves movies and watches movies all the time he just didn't go to film school and doesn't work in hollywood that's what makes him an outsider uh a quote-unquote outsider artist but um i need to go back and watch more stuff because uh this is like i said for lack of better a better term it's a horror movie because it it is at least at the beginning it is about there's a convent and one of the nuns is possibly possessed by a demon and so a um a priest who's like many like uh movie priests kind of like jaded uh, um gets called in and he brings with him a uh I can't remember. They use the term in the movie, but someone who like, someone who's like not yet a priest, a, like a young man who's like a priest in training. There's a specific term for it that I can't remember. Padawan. Um, yeah. Like Padawan. Um, they bring him along. And then like, when they realize like, Oh, this demon is a big deal. They bring in this like excommunicated former priest who like doesn't play by the rules or whatever, but like all of that stuff, like at a certain point, that's like the first half of the movie. And then it just like the movie follows, for the rest of the time it, the movie follows one of the other nuns at the convent and like how this incident has like reverberated in her life it jumps an unspecified amount of time uh uh forward to where she's still a Catholic but is no longer a practicing nun that's where she meets Sean Gunn who's like a stand-up comic um it's uh it it's a movie that is um so hard to to pin down uh in in the ways that we usually categorize movies it weirdly felt And i don't know obviously i haven't watched nearly as many christian films as you have Sure, but um in uh the opening sort of like establishing who the nuns are and who the priests are and how we're supposed to feel about this like jaded priest like it felt like i think about christian movies where it's like at the beginning of the movie is kind of like telling you who the characters are as opposed to letting the characters tell you who they are. Um, And that feels very intentional as it goes on, because I think obviously Agnes, you know, it's got many elements that would not qualify it as a Christian movie, but as it goes on, I did start to wonder like, is Mickey Reese a Christian? Like the, the, the conversations we have, because by the end um, the character, the, the nun that I said, we follow, uh after this this possession circles background and meets up again with that young priest in training who is now a priest and like the sort of climactic scene of the film is them just having a conversation in a diner over like sandwiches Hmm. about god and the nature of of god and oh man uh, and it's it's like
1: conversation (laughs) in a diner about god this is (laughs) my this is my movie
0: yeah um uh I, i i don't know how uh really to to describe it but make movies clearly has a good, uh, eye. he clearly, like I said, watches a lot of movies. He knows the genres in which he's working. He knows how he's subverting those genres. This isn't just like stream of consciousness. He knows uh, he's, he's, he's doing these things on purpose. Uh, but I found the movie, um, transfixing and, and, and fascinating. And the, um, uh, the, uh, Molly C Quinn is the, um, uh, is is the main act who she plays Mary, the, the one who ends up being uh uh the person who the movie follows. Um and I feel like I've seen her before, but like even when I look her up, it's uh a lot of things like she had like some unnamed role in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. She she looked very familiar. But um uh yeah, Sean Gunn, I feel like someone else uh, oh yeah, Jake Hor yeah, oh yeah, the young pre the young uh uh priest in training is played by Jake Horowitz, the oh. star from Bast of Night. Nice. Um uh yeah, so uh I I could keep talking about this movie and still not find anything like concrete to say because it's such a befuddling movie, but in a good way. I, I really loved it. Uh all right, wait, am I up 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 again? Uh yes oh okay well (laughs) total about face but speaking of the christmas spirit i watched my first ever hallmark christmas movie oh okay uh natalie and i watched tis the season to be merry um m-e-r-r-y oh okay. also the character's name is mary (laughs) Um, m-e-r-r-y like an oversight but uh the reason i watched this movie is that the story by credit belongs to friend of this podcast jen kirkman oh
1: okay wow um we have a couple friends of the show that write hallmark movies now uh tyler stracely has written a few okay uh and jen kirkman she has a story by credit oh boy yeah well she's i mean if you
0: if you uh are still follow jen and listen to her podcast and, and stuff like that uh um, we used to go to her back when we could do comedy shows in person around christmas which she used to have a an annual dysfunctional christmas uh show at the improv and she would like the last one I went to the 2019, she did like a parody of Hallmark movies. She's obsessed mm. with Hallmark Christmas movies and Christmas in general. Like if that you follow tracks. her on Instagram, like she puts up her Christmas tree, like November 1st, she's like a big Christmas person mm. and is obsessed with Hallmark movies. And it's done a parody. And then she just like, she apparently reached out to Hallmark and was like, I've seen enough of these. I think I could write one. And then like she submitted a script and they like took it. She got rewritten, but there's still some of her, in it, if you know uh, her uh, Christmas uh, stuff, um, like there's a part uh, where they specifically have a conversation about how weird it is to wait till the last minute to decorate a Christmas tree, because that's something that happens in Hallmark movies is they have that like scene huh. of them decorating a Christmas tree when it's like three days before Christmas. And like, so if you know Jim Kirkman, you're like, Oh yeah, that's the, but the, yeah, the, it has a, I mean, I, I don't, I haven't watched, like I said, this is the first one I've seen. I'm aware of mostly through Jen Kirkman as my wife, who also watches a lot of these. I'm aware of like the structure. So I don't know how much of this is just the way these are or how much of it is a level of parody, but Rachel Lee cook plays a, uh, dating advice columnist who in a sort of like uh Christmas in Connecticut type of way has made up a fake like fiance, you know? And okay. then, so, uh, um when her publisher like finds out she's mad so she like goes to her agent's parents home for christmas and spends like christmas in this small vermont town with her agent's parents while she has to like try and figure out how i'm going to salvage this book like do i you know what do i write do i have to like find a fiance or whatever like uh and uh it turns out her a- she's staying with her agent's family it turns out her agent's uh younger brother is home for the holidays unexpectedly oh, okay. and uh, he's been in guatemala uh, building homes, and uh, <laughs> which is not only very fetching, it's also done great things to his physique. Of course, so, yes. Um, yes. Uh, so yeah, the the thing like r- writes itself, and I think that's kind of part of the 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 point. Um, it actually, the movie actually has like three different romances, but Rachel Lee Cooks is the is is the main one. Um, but uh, the other um, uh, the other thing, and this is kind of giving away some of the movie, but like I said, these things write themselves. Uh, there's one line that I'm like, okay, I think Jed Kerfner wrote that specific line where, um, uh, the, the love interest is like decided to like, uh, things aren't, are working out for him in this small Vermont town. He's going to go back to his life of charity and he's going to go to, I can't remember where like Indonesia or something, uh, to work in like an elephant sanctuary. Um, and she like goes to the airport to try and stop him to like profess her 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 love and she says something about like yeah, you know, you could do that you could fly off to Indonesia to buy to build houses for all those elephants. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, feels,
1: yes. Yeah, I, I agree with you.
0: Um so yeah, I'm I'm glad that I watched my first Hallmark movie. I did it uh out of solidarity with friend of the show, Jen Kirkman. Um yeah. tis the season to be merry. <laughs> Um, and it's also one of those things where like every actor in this movie that you've never heard of, which is basically everyone, but Rachel, Lee cook is clearly Canadian it takes place in Vermont, but sure. there's a lot of, there's a lot of stories and boats and stuff like that in the, in the movie.
1: It's geographically close enough. I'll allow it. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay. So my next movie is Jane Campion's the power of the dog. Still haven't um, gotten to it. Okay. Uh, I realize I have not seen that much Jane Campion. Um, I saw the piano and this feels like that like also I think in the story you do have a, a situation where a, a character a, a character and and her uh, child are coming to live to this uh, coming to live at this new place that already sort of has its its uh, its way of operating. Um, But, uh, but yeah, the, the story is about, boy, this is the, this is a tough one to talk about because there are developments that I genuinely think would count as spoilers because they're, they're reveals and there's so much I want to talk about in regards to the film and its characters, but outside of the broadest possible discussion of the story, um, (laughs) almost anything could be considered uh, a spoiler. Um, but I, so I will talk about it just in the, you know, what, I'll just talk about it in terms of style and, and I'll talk around things. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, it's the 1920s, I believe. Uh, and it's this, uh, this fairly wealthy, uh, these two fairly wealthy brothers in Montana who run uh, like a cattle ranch um, played by Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons. And Jesse Plemons then meets uh, this young uh, in, well, I guess she's not that young. I think of Kirsten Dunst as young, but she's, she has a teenage son. So I guess she's not that young. Um, But is uh, is Kirsten Dunst older than we are our age, younger? I would, I would venture to say older, but maybe the same age. Um, Born in 19. Oh, she's right between us. April, 1982. Okay. All right. So she is younger, younger than you, older than me. Yeah. So I would definitely say old, uh, (laughs) because I'm feeling old these days. Um, but anyway, so she, she meets, uh, and marries Jesse Plemons and they do genuinely seem to like each other. Uh, and she comes to his ranch and just, and Plemen and, and Benedict Cumberbatch's character, just for for reasons that we can really only speculate about, just starts treating her with a great deal of hostility. And her son, played by Cody's McPhee, is sort of stereotypically like effeminate uh, and intellectual and everything that this like uh, rancher character is not. Uh, and so he targets him for ridicule and. Um, And really, from a story standpoint, the thing that kept me engrossed is just learning more and more about Benedict Cumberbatch's character, Uh, because what you think he is, is definitely not what you realize he actually is, except he is, he is, and it's what he's trying to be versus what he is. And I think that's so fascinating, especially in. What ha- a film that really just has the iconography of a Western, even though it takes place in the 1920s. And so, you know, it's 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 way past the end of an era uh, and you have characters that are trying some characters that are trying to hold on to it, some that are willing to let it go. Uh, and then in the midst of all this, it is it's a beautiful looking film, whether you're whether, whether it's like the nice the, the vast open spaces or. The, the very nice, beautiful uh, ranch house that at times can feel very suffocating, especially to the Kirsten Dunst character. Um, really great score by Johnny Greenwood. And that's the thing is I really feel like I, I would love to, maybe when you see it, we can have like a a sp- spoiler warning discussion about it because there's a lot I really want to delve into. uh, And, and to the film's credit, there is a lot to delve into and I don't think there's any official answer to some of the character based mysteries that, that the film uh, presents you with. So uh, it's definitely, I'm very glad that I saw it. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, It's available on Netflix. That's how I watched it. So um, yeah. So check it out.
0: Uh, speaking of beautifully shot movies, I saw Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of
1: Macbeth. Uh, I, I've been avoiding trailers for this movie. Okay. And then I happened. I mean, you know uh, what happens. It's I Macbeth. do. Yeah. But from a visual standpoint, I kind of wanted to be uh, surprised. And then I, I saw, I forget where, but I, I didn't even see a full trailer. But I saw some, some shots from the film. And my, the first place my mind went was Orson Welles, my, uh, specifically uh, his Othello um not even necessarily his Macbeth but it it reminded me of that visually
0: yeah it uh well it definitely has I I should have thought of Orson Welles I thought because there's so many close-ups I thought of Carl Theodore Dreyer Mm. um it's you know a lot of black and white uh uh close-ups it's also but it does have yeah that kind of Orson Welles thing of like not really trying to pretend that this is happening in like a real castle like this yeah. is a, it's very clearly a uh, a set the, the the walls are like almost supernaturally like smooth and 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 blank yeah uh, when you look out the window you never see you never see a horizon line because there's always fog out there and it's, so yeah. you you get the impression like okay this is taking place on a sound stage and they're just like filling in the background with fog because the other side of the fog isn't the horizon it's right. literally the wall of the yeah, sound just, page. A,
1: just a bunch of teamsters
0: <laughs> yeah yeah um uh so it, it it has that uh that artifice that that I that I think um uh i in a good way that i associate with orson well so i probably should have thought of that um but i definitely thought of just like sort of classic hollywood in general and in, in many ways in terms of bruno dubnell's lighting um uh the the way that uh, i mean i d- one of the first things I said to Natalie when I got home from the screening is that like, Frances McDormand has never looked more beautiful than she looks hmm. in, in in this movie. Um, it's so gorgeously lit and and, and framed. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, Denzel Washington is Denzel Washington. I mean, even if, even yeah. if it weren't a Joel Cohen movie, Denzel Washington playing Macbeth is reason enough to. Yeah, that should sell t- tickets. Um, well, yeah, I guess I don't know. I don't know who the movie going audience is anymore. Sure. Yeah. That's not Denzel Washington. Isn't what sells tickets. It's Willem Dafoe and Alfred Merlina reprising roles. From yes. 20 years ago. That's what sells tickets now. Apparently. Um, I'm such an old snob. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, in my world, tragedy should be one of the highest gross movies of the, sure. uh, of the, of the year because, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> um, it's, uh, uh it's it's Macbeth, so you, you probably know the story i couldn't help but compare it to because there was a Macbeth just a few years ago justin Kurzel, yeah, uh, yeah made a Macbeth with michael uh fassbender and marion cotillard um and that was uh that i re- don't recall i i don't think it was very well regarded that one i didn't care much for it no um yeah, that was 2015. So six years ago. It's so like back when Jessica Chastain was making good movies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, different I, time. I didn't really care for uh, for Justin Kurzel's Macbeth, but I kept thinking of it because um, of how different, you know, this is the nature of Shakespeare really of just like cinema or Stagecraft or whatever, however you're doing it, like the interpretation and the execution can differ wildly from movie to movie. Um, uh, so one of the things that uh, that really stuck out to me about this tragedy, the tragedy of Macbeth, is um, it's not you know bloodless, yeah, but uh, how much the violence is kept off screen. Whereas Justin Kurzel went the opposite direction. Mm. His Macbeth is drenched in blood. Yeah. Um, and I think about things like, um, um, Julie Taymor's Titus, which is also like, sure. Very bloody, you know, to make Macbeth like one of the, like bloodier, well, I guess Titus is one of the bloody ones, but you know, a movie with multiple murders, um, to, to, to make it in, in, in a way that seems, uh, to be more, suggestive not that it feels sanitized at all, but there's just a surprising lack of like on screen viscera in, yeah. in in the movie, which
1: I think kind which of is again, an old that's an old school sensibility
0: yeah that's what i, I again this movie feels like so much of it uh, i mean there are some visual effects that obviously couldn't have been made uh in the nineteen forties but it it feels like it could have been made uh seventy five mm. years ago um and I mean that in the in the best possible sense um uh, yeah, uh, it's really, you know, it's the, it's the, um, Denzel Washington defense McDormand show for the, for the most part, but, um, Corey Hawkins plays McDuff. Uh, um, yeah. he, and he played, um, um, well, he was in, uh, straight out of Compton, right. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember, did he play
1: Dre in that? Uh, I didn't see it, so I don't know.
0: Uh yeah, he played Dr. Dre and started at Compton. Um but he's uh, he's very good. And you've got uh Brennan Gleason as, as Duncan, the, the king who again, if you know Macbeth, you know you're not gonna see a lot of Brendan Gleason once he's introduced. Yeah. <laughs> um uh Harry Melling plays uh Duncan's son. Um you've got some 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 good people um, uh showing up. there's also like uh the biggest sort of and I won't even like I think this will be a spoiler, but uh, just for the listeners and for your sake, I won't spoil how they, how Jill Co- Cohen envisions it or, or or realizes the, uh, the weird sisters, the, the three, like uh, yeah, the, you know, oval, the witches Toil and trouble. Yeah. The witches, yeah. whatever you want to call them. Um, I won't uh, I won't reveal how he realizes them. It's uh it's novel and it's very cool. Oh, um, I'm yeah. excited. All right. So next up for me is, After the tragedy of Macbeth, I watched Sean Baker's red rocket. All right. Uh, a movie that we might, uh, I might talk about, uh, in our, our episode this week. Oh, oh, um, uh, but, uh, man, another, just a fantastic movie from, yeah. From Sean Baker. Um, to to, uh, go back to what I was saying about friends, about being a movie being like ridiculously funny and also like human and tragic at the, at the same time. um, Simon Rex, who's like a uh, like former MTV VJ everything, and every rapper, kind of performer you can, and be. also like to some extent, he did some porn. Yeah, uh, not to the extent of his character. His character in this movie, Mikey Sabers, his uh, stage, his screen name, it's a great name. Um, yeah, is a uh, uh, a formerly very successful porn star who's done in his life has come back to his his he's come back to his tiny uh, hometown of uh texas city texas um and uh almost immediately he moves back in with his uh estranged wife and her and her mother and then almost immediately meets a young woman who works at the donut shop and starts to see his way back into the porn industry he's so he wants to he starts romancing this very young woman with the uh clear intention of convincing her to come back to LA with him and do and do porn. Mm. Um, but, uh, it, it's, it also, you know, we've, I can't remember, did we ever do that episode? Did we just talk about it as much that it feels like it did it about like short-term period pieces, like movies
1: that take place in the past, but I in the recent past. Now I think we did, but now I don't remember listeners, uh, weigh in, you, you know, the show better than we do. Um,
0: well, this movie takes place in the summer of 2016. There are a lot of Trump yard signs. Sure. You see characters watching the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention. Um, the, like it, this is there's clearly something going on. There's a reason that he set the movie yeah. uh, here, which is um, I, I think uh, it wouldn't be so. It would be reductive to say that Mikey Saver is supposed to be a Donald Trump type but the idea that different people see different things when they look at donald trump you know some people the people who like him see that he's like um willing to that he you know doesn't play by the rules and and he's like uh success-minded and goal-driven and he's like a striver um and other people look at him and see him as a complete like people like me see him as a bullshit or a liar, a fraud. And that's, that's how, that's how he gets ahead in life is by not caring about uh, the truth and caring about uh, other people by serving his own interests first. (coughs) Uh, And and so I think this, the two sides of the coin striver and bullshitter are what Mikey is too. And this is, uh, I think red rocket is a, a very um, open and not judgmental, portrait of the part of you know you and i were talking off mic um before we recorded about the tv show yellowstone yes yes um and the fact that like no one we know essentially i mean you like you said we had no one in our general like social circles really watches yellowstone and yet it's almost the most it's it's the most watched like cable drama and one of the (laughs) most watched scripted shows on tv it's doing like game of thrones numbers every week and no one is talking about it and and at least in our circles and i feel like red rocket is a movie that is uh shines a light on in an inquisitive and inquisitive and sometimes very humanistic i mean it wouldn't be sean baker if there were any yeah Uh, he's not a judgmental person i don't think or at least not a judgmental filmmaker at all um on a, a, a part of the world that uh people in my social circles generally have the luxury of not thinking about very often. Yeah. Uh, and it does all that by being well, being, uh, absolutely hilarious. And Simon Rex, um, definitely. I mean, I, I don't think red rocket is the kind of movie that's going to get, um, that much attention from the Academy. Yeah. Um, which is probably for the best, um, be, because, well we'll get into that on this week's episode right. uh but um again this is one of the performances of the
1: year all right oh, uh, you should have one more and then i, I have do two more okay yes uh okay so my last film is guillermo del toro's nightmare alley which i saw last night and right. was very glad that i saw it i think it's a i had a great time watching it which is weird to say because the film is quite dark and quite uh I won't say depressing because it's it, the everything is so heightened that mm-hmm. even the, even the sadness, even the, the, the moments of depression uh, are, are entertaining. And in that regard, like it's, it, it fits in nicely with like uh, the film noir tradition. Right. It's not depressing, but it's also not optimistic. It certainly is not. Um, it's uh, and I wouldn't even say the film is necessarily misanthropic Um but it, it more just it has a certain it acknowledges uh, the darker side of humanity and occasionally revels in it and allows us to rebel in it while also knowing that, like, yeah, but you can't do this for too long before things start to go wrong. And, and sure enough, they do like every like every good film noir um, <clears throat> definitely makes me want to watch the original uh, the original film. But uh, with Tyrone Power from 1947, I want to say. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's uh I was looking at reviews of it and there are people that said like it was overlong, and there are pacing issues. I was like, I don't, I don't see that. I see it as a very methodical pacing, uh, which makes sense given the nature of what this character does. I mean, the film at its core is a con artist movie uh, with some very unusual visual trappings, which is, you know, he comes out of a carnival. So you see, you know, uh, you see human oddities and all this sort of thing uh but at its core it really is just about a guy learning how to read people and tell people what they want to hear and then he sees the opportunity for a big con and he goes for it and it doesn't go great um and so with and so i think because it it i think guillermo del Torre, because he's he's operating on this he knows what he is the the world in which he is working uh which is to say a, a uniquely cinematic world uh the the style is through the roof and there are times when i wonder it's like i mean like so the film is just beautiful both as a function of its art direction and costume design and 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 cinematography um <clears throat> use of light and color the whole thing uh, and there are times when I wonder, it's like, should this movie be this beautiful? It feels like it shouldn't be given the nature <laughs> of the story. Uh, but then I realized, like, yeah, but we're dealing in kind of the, the, the fantasy world of movies. Uh, and in this especially when you're dealing with characters who are, who are dealing in artifice um, and dealing with telling people what they want to hear and dealing with a certain type of romanticism within that, it makes sense that the movie would look like that. And so, uh, so yeah, I just really enjoyed being in this world. Uh, I really enjoyed the, the, the characters uh, and the performances. I think the, the oddly enough, the performance that stuck with me the most was David Strathairn um, mm. who, who plays maybe the most human character of the bunch um because or or the most like recognizably human character um but and also the the film because it's doing it's a con artist movie it also it does what a lot of great con artist movies do which is it it gives you enough behind the scenes to be like, Oh, this is exciting. Like, Oh yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. it's, it, like, yeah. Oh, you saw this. And so you surmise this and this and this. And so, uh, and his character has, has a certain, uh, a certain part to play in that. And so, uh, yeah, I just really, it's one of my favorite movies of the year, just because it's so it's just such a, it's such a movie. Uh, It's and, and it, and it feels, it definitely has that an old school sensibility while still having a modern sensibility and being undeniably a Guillermo del Toro movie. And I'm always interested. I, this is an episode I would like to do, which is a director's follow up, not necessarily their second movie, but like, Oh, this, this film, this director just broke through with like Pulp Fiction you know uh and it's like okay well what so what movie did they do next Mm -hmm. and then like oh this director just won an oscar what movie did they do next you know like with the the clout that they have whether it be box office or prestige what did they choose to do with it and i like that guillermo del toro just went back to making guillermo del toro movies not to suggest shape of water isn't that but there is a social quality to it Uh, a messaging quality to it this not so much it's just him going back to making what he's always made uh it definitely feels of a piece uh with crimson peak to me uh and and certainly
0: um i mean it's certainly gruesome in the way that crimson peak was not as as often but when people get
1: fucked up in nightmare Alley, they get fucked up they yes they do (laughs) uh people and animals and uh yeah i i really really loved it Uh, i think
0: I hadn't heard people talk about the overlong or pacing issue, but I think that's just a function of the way that the movie is almost two stories. I and mean, yes. it, it it really is just what it's Bradley Cooper's characters story. It's one story, but it it has like, it's a two and a half hour movie and it has the, the first hour is the like Carney section. And the yeah. second hour and a half is the, the big con section. So I imagine I can see why some people might think that felt like jarring or, or made the movie feel longer because it has two, two
1: distinct modes. I, I mean, I think the first hour, I think it does a, a solid enough job setting everything up that when we cut to two years later, mm-hmm. I can fill in the blanks and be like, yes, I can see how we got there from here. Yeah.
0: All right. So two more and then we're done. Two more for me yeah. and then we're done. Uh, I watched and was uh, very pleasantly uh, surprised by uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's The Lost Daughter. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like, I, I don't know if it, you, you and I have always had this like, caution around like, actors turned directors, but I feel like there's been so many good ones lately that maybe I'm just wrong. <laughs> my,
1: my caution is usually their first film. And I know, I think she has, has she made a a, a films before? I feel like she's, I thought she had made one.
0: I thought, Oh, maybe I'm wrong. I thought this was the first thing that she directed. Let's see. Maybe it is. Um, this is her first feature. Okay. Okay. Yes. She did, uh, like a, an 11 minute segment in like an anthology film called homemade. Okay. Uh, where she's one of, uh, a ton of directors in that. Okay, so this is her first feature. Okay. Um and I I I hadn't my wife has read the uh Elena Ferrante novel that it's based on. Um uh, I hadn't. So I didn't know uh quite what to uh, expect, but um it's funny that I uh, some of the things that I talked about earlier in in this I and mean, then I talked about, like, Sean Baker not being judgmental. This is definitely not a judgmental movie on the director's uh, or screenwriter's part. But I also talked about Oscar's character in Card Counter being, like, in this constant state of, like, self-punishment and self-loathing. And uh, it it dawned on me fairly early on that that's what was happening in The Lost Daughter. That, like, I knew this was going to have... You know, it's I I, I was imagining not knowing anything about the movie it's about a uh middle-aged uh english woman on a working vacation alone in this greek like on this greek island um and then another family is staying on the island and she gets involved and And i was like expecting this kind of um hitchcockian almost mystery like what's she gonna you know she's gonna get uh wrapped up in some sort of family uh dynamics dynamics uh uh, you all very quickly come to realize that it was a pleasant surprise to me that Olivia Coleman's character is like, not a super nice person. <laughs> she could be very like standoffish and pushy mm. and rude to, to people. And I was like, so immediately I'm intrigued. Like that's a fantastic uh, decision to make for your, yeah. uh, your, your, your main character to, to be rude to people. Um, uh and 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 then so the movie has its present day um uh element and then it has flashbacks to her as Olivia Coleman's character when she was younger and had and when her daughters were, were still very young. And uh in those she's played by Jesse Buckley. Oh, okay. Um and uh <laughs> I'm sure certain listeners like are tired of us talking about like weird thing about getting old, but like it's like weird to realize that the flashbacks to young Olivia Coleman as a young mother take place, like still in the 21st century, yeah. like, <laughs> you know, like she's still like, like for some reason, like I, my mind was like, because I still think of myself as a younger person. Sometimes so I was like, okay, so this is like the eighties then. And she's like on her laptop and I was yeah. like, Oh fuck, no, this is like 2002. <laughs> um, um, yeah. But, uh, uh, but it's, um, Uh, it's yeah it's a fascinating um performance by Olivia coleman a great sense of restraint and lack of self-consciousness on Maggie Gyllenhaal's part a lack of like telling us how to feel about the character so we can we can see we come to understand like this is this is a movie about a person who thinks that she has been a bad mother and a bad wife in her life but the movie itself is not telling you that it's right. you're living with her and understanding why she feels this way. While the movie is like standing back and saying, you know, feel however you want about it. This is how she feels about what she did when she was younger. Um, and all of this against this like beautiful Greek backdrop, you've got, uh, uh, a good support, a really good supporting cast. Ed Harris plays the like caretaker of the little, like, I don't know apartment building where she rents, uh, her, her place. And then, um, Dakota Johnson is one of the other, like the large vacationing family. Who's also on, on the Island. And then, like I said, that Jesse Buckley, uh, Peter Sarsgaard, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's real life, uh, husband,
1: uh, also shows up in the, in the flashbacks. See, I, n- I a, never know this. I, like I don't keep track of who's who's married to whom I had no idea they were together.
0: The only, re- cause I generally don't, the only reason I know and this is going back to 2005 is like my uh my ex-girlfriend worked at like a hair salon and um she was like oh one of the ladies of the hair salon invited us to go with her friends to go see Michael Hanukkah's cachet mm-hmm. And for some reason we decided not to go. And then only later found out that this hairdresser's friends were Maggie Gyllenhaal and Peter Sarsgaard. If we had just said, yes, I could have seen cachet with Maggie Gyllenhaal. Oh man. (laughs) Um, uh, Anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there, but uh, yeah, great, great movie.
1: I'm really, really glad that I, that I saw it. And your last film on Netflix, I'm very excited to hear about from you. Because I wasn't, I didn't go looking for it, but I happened upon letterboxed. I just uh, just edited
0: right before we recorded. Yeah. Yeah. So last night I watched Lana Wachowski's The Matrix Resurrection, resurrections, plural. There's more than one resurrection. Mm. And
1: this is the the year for siblings going their own way. uh, Yeah. Between uh, Lana and Joel.
0: Well, I want to see what, um, wait, no, wait, Lily. Oh yeah, Lana is the one. Okay, so yeah, I want to see what Lily and Ethan are cooking. Exactly, are like, they yeah. off making a movie together? Um, no. Uh, so I watched the M- of Resur- Resurrections. Watched it for two and a half hours uh, with a smile on my face, and then like it's like two o'clock in the morning when it was finally when I was done with it, and like the credits rolling, and I like said out loud like. Oh my God. It's so good. Like I was so pleasantly like, Oh, I'm not pleasantly surprised. I was over the moon. Like this movie, like I was like, of course there was a part of me that was like, I, I like all of the Wachowski's films. There's no reason I'm not going to like this. But then there's also the like cynic part of me. that's like really a legacy sequel made by yeah. one of the directors. Like, is this a cash in yeah. or, or, or whatever? Um, and maybe it is, maybe it is a cash in in terms of like, that's why Warner brothers made it. There is like sure. the movie is, in, in ways that I've seen people be critical of, but that I liked, is very specifically self-referential in its early uh, uh, goings about like uh, remakes and and reboots and stuff like that. Um, but also, I shouldn't have remembered that, as we talked about before, when the actors who played the Oracle died between Matrix and Matrix Reloaded, the Wachowskis didn't just recast her they did recast her but they also wrote an entire explanation into a video game of why she looks different like i should have known lana machowski is not going to phone in like why are we back in this world why is this happening like if anything very much the opposite yeah no but i mean there's like it's there are fantastically great reasons for why things are the way they are in this world that don't undo the original trilogy which is i think very like that's the that was the the fear right like oh didn't neo like win or whatever like now why are we back 20 years later um or 18 years is that right revolutions of 2003 yeah that's 18 years so 18 years um like why are we back it's all very much uh explained without being over explained that's another thing that um other people have pointed out this is directed by Lon Wachowski, but written by Lon Wachowski and David Mitchell, who wrote the novel cloud Atlas. Oh, okay. So I think some of that sometimes like overly clunky Wachowski dialogue, there's some of it in here for sure, but it's, it's much better dialogue, um, Mm -hmm. than, than, uh, than we're used to in the, in, in, in the matrix movies. You've also got a fantastic cast. Um, some surprising, uh, surprising in who they did bring back and who they didn't okay you okay. know i, I think you, you probably know from the posters that ken reeves and and uh carrie Ann moss are back yes. but the the other characters from the original trilogy who show up you're like oh they <laughs> went, went, went out of their way to include this person from the sequels um or or whatever it's I'd uh, be hard pressed to tell you any of them um yeah and uh uh but the 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 movie is um it's delightfully fun. It looks fantastic. Uh, the other thing I have, I have seen people say, and I think I agree that the action sequences are not at the level you expect from the matrix uh-huh. or at least from matrix one and two. I always felt like matrix three Matrix revolutions. That's one of the reasons I didn't like it is like, I was, I was used to this, like more precise choreographed. Matrix yeah. type movie, I have no memory like of any, the, any
1: action sequences from the third one.
0: The makes I mean the action scenes in the third one I memory are more like mainstream Hollywood like explosion type of yeah. type of things. Uh this is somewhere in between those. There's hand-to-hand combat, there's like a motor motorcycle chase, and there's some really um uh interesting things. It's not quite at the level of choreography of those first two movies, but it's still a good action movie, and it has a lot of fantastic visual ideas that um uh I won't go into any spoilers or specifics but like this isn't just back in the matrix time has passed and the matrix has changed Mm -hmm. and so um there are some new interesting things that they uh that people or that the machines or whoever can can do um in in the matrix that leads to some like uh there's yeah in that final motorcycle chase there's something that happens that is like like uh, horrifyingly gruesome but also like that's so cool <laughs> at the yeah. same time um uh but uh but the last thing I said is that i guess this is a theme of this episode uh episode is like whether or not we're projecting social like uh messaging onto movies whether or not it's actually there the one of the main things that has changed between the original matrix trilogy <laughs> sure. and this one is that Lana Wachowski and Lily, but Lana Wachowski, the director has come out as transgender. And mm-hmm. so it is, um, hard not to want to look for a transgender narrative in, in this sure. movie. And I think, I think you can see it, that, but, but like getting into it would maybe be spoilery, but like okay. the idea of someone like you could read there's the idea of Neo being like resisting becoming what he actually is fighting to Mm. remain what he is not, I think has could, could be seen as this like in the closet type of type of uh, uh, narrative, but there's also, um, you know, uh, I, I, one of the thoughts I had in this, you know, I know this one, uh, this one landed with you because you haven't watched these shows, but I thought of this as being like, the Angel to the original trilogy's Buffy. Okay. Because Buffy, one of the greatest shows of all time, but has a like good guys versus bad guys narrative. One of the first things that because Angel was always very noir inspired. And one of the first things that happen when you get into the world of Angel is things get grayer. That you can't like when you meet a demon in Angel, it if you meet it if you meet a demon on Buffy, there's a 99% chance that's a bad guy. Yeah. On Angel, it's like a coin toss. And um, that's again, without getting too much into spoilers of major resurrections, the idea that like the binary, if you will, the duality of man versus oh, sure. machine yeah. is not so cut and dried anymore. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, terrifically fun. If you needed to get, you need to wash eight bit Christmas out of your mouth. <laughs> you want to see a new, a different Neil Patrick Harris performance. He's Fucking great in this movie, okay. And also, like, I credit him, but also credit Wachowski. The the sort of obligatory like villain describing his plot scene in Matrix Resurrections is maybe the best scene in the movie because oh. of what uh Lana Wachowski, like how how she stages it, and and the ideas of what happened, what can happen in the Matrix now, and also because of uh, Neil Patrick Harris's. Uh, performance is is fantastic so uh i am so pleased to report that as i said to myself at two o'clock in the morning oh my god it's so good